0: Please welcome Miss Anne-Marie Duff! Oh, tea, madam? Yes, please. Right, so you did say you were partial to a cuppa. Huh? Yeah. So, this is <laughs> your the treat. The campus
1: thing, remember. Here it is. <laughs>
0: Lovely. There we are. Thank you, sir. Bicky. No, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm grand. You're
0: good. Good. Tea. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome as ever. Now, one of the great pleasures of theatre going in London over the last 10 or 15 years has been to witness the blossoming of Anne-Marie Duff from a young actor of tremendous potential to what I think now is a superb actor, absolutely the peak of her powers. And I think anybody who's seen her performance, in strange interlude on this very stage we won't need convincing of that and I'm glad to see the Nationals played a lot of part in this progress really since I suppose she played Cordelia to Ian Holmes famously unclothed Leah although he kept his hit on in your scenes together, as, as I remember, Anne-Marie. Yeah, there's no,
1: yeah there, was, <laughs> <laughs> there was no need for new Exactly,
0: yes. exactly. And, of course, a wonderful St. Joan, an award-winning performance here at the National. But I'd also like to mention Berenice by Racine, collected stories with Helen Mirren, and playing the lead character in Rattigan's Cours at the Old Vic. And as for screen performances, well, she's played... Elizabeth the Margot Fontaine and John Lennon's mum, which is a sort of interesting trio there <laughs> And to the outside world of course uh, she's fondly known as the long-suffering Fiona in Shameless Which had its last episode recently and you all went back for a kind of nostalgic reunion yeah. So actors often say to me at this point that they've been <laughs> listening to me reel off those credits And they think that sounds very impressive. I wonder who did all of that. <laughs> Do you feel a bit the same that somehow? It wasn't like that. It was much more... It sounds very... You went from this to that and did this and got that and all the rest of it. Is it a bit more random, a bit more chancy than that sounds?
1: Um, It's kind of difficult to articulate in as much as uh, I have had extraordinarily good fortune never to repeat myself. So it's... um, so I don't feel I feel so very much like there were all been big fat swollen tasty chapters, you know. So I don't feel like a uh, oh that was my period of playing such and such uh, uh, certain character types or that was you know. So in that way I I do feel very connected to it and I sort of it sounds desperately self indulgent, but I sort of have had a love affair with every character I've played. So I do feel like almost like there were. Just parts of my growing up as a woman, mm. and you know, and just discovering stuff about myself and about the universe, you know. So, I'm sorry, I'm so like this, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I do feel attached to it, I mm. feel viscerally attached to it, uh, uh, just because I feel so passionate about it mm. all, I guess.
0: Because it's, as we were saying, it's 20 years since you left drama school, yeah. I just thought I'd mention that. <laughs> no. how do you enjoy that? And have you been looking back, or because most actors don't do that much, they like they prefer to think about the next job down the line, but mm. have you been Surprised by how it's gone since you left drama
1: school. Yeah, I- I- I'm s- constantly surprised and thrilled and grateful mm-hmm. um, And for all of the things I talked about uh, just before you know just this the riches the feast I've gorged mm-hmm. on really you know creatively and and it wasn't really until we talked about it just then that I realised it was 20 years. Uh, no. Thanks, Al. <laughs> no, but I, I didn't, no. I truly didn't. And of course this month it is, because I would have graduated from college yes. in 93. So, um, I mean, blimey, how lucky have I been? But in a very old-fashioned way, I mm. guess. You know, I left the drama centre and I worked with Mike Alfreds. What an incredible teacher, David Glass, another incredible teacher. Then went off and worked with shared experience. Brilliant teaching environment. And then I came here and worked with Richard. And, you know, so it was just... I had this space, and I think a lot of young actors don't have it so much now. I was very protected. I got to learn my craft. Mm. And and I wasn't thrown into the lead in a great big old TV drama or movie. and if I screwed up, that's it. The jig's up, mm, you know? Mm. Whereas I got to really sort of watch and, and breathe in other people's craft as well as just trying to work on my own. And I think that's, that's really lucky. And, and I think the theatre provides the, the space to do that.
0: I mean, did you have specific ambitions of yeah. parts you wanted to play when you left drama? I desperately wanted
1: t- to be like... Mm-hmm. Judy Dench. Right. Or, mm. or Ellen Terry. Yeah. Or... I didn't have, I didn't want to be, I don't know, I didn't want to be Meryl Streep. You know, I wanted to be here. Mm-hmm. It was very clear to me. I was a p- hysterically pretentious teenager. <laughs> I mean, imagine that growing up in hazy middle West. <laughs> <laughs> that went down well. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that was that, that was me. So tell us about
0: Strange Interlude. When the uh, When the offer came through, had you... Heard of the play? Did you know anything about it? Or do you know Neil, anything about him, his work, his life?
1: I'd never worked on an O'Neill play Mm. before, but obviously I knew a great deal about him. Mm. Uh, I'd never heard of Strange Interlude, never mind not having read it or seen it. I got sent this enormous script a couple of years ago. I just had my little boy and I was in no place to make a decision about, I was just, Oh my god this is just an extraordinary pan- you know extraordinary panorama and um, I then it was sort of put on the back burner I think the there's scheduling here in this building they weren't sure when they were going to do it and da 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 so I read it and then received the cut version later <laughs> and uh, and came and met Simon mm-hmm. and that was sort of how it happened but I did think it was like Nothing I'd read before, and also like no other Eugene O'Neill play I'd would re- read before, and um, and I I remember bumping into an actress called Liz White, who some of you probably all know from Port and other things, um, in the loo here just before I met Simon. I said, Oh my God, I'm eating Simon Godwin for this bonkers play. And she went, Oh, it's O'Neill. I said, Well, she said, You'll never stop loving it, mm. and, I, and that's true.
0: Because she was in the company that came from Northampton to do the uh, uh, O'Neill play, yeah. and uh, that's right, a couple of new O'Neill plays. Yeah. Um, now you say five hours; it's been reduced to sort of three and a half hours. More, I'd maybe a bit less. Actually. What's, what's gone from the anything that you regret losing in the the sort of reduction, the revision? Well, I of mean, the it's play? all so
1: beautiful; you can always say, so fight for lines, but actually you have to serve the story, the chronology of the story, and hold your audience and keep them interested. And there were an awful lot, you know, that the play is, I don't know if anybody's seen the play, but the play sort of exists in two dimensions. One is within your noggin. So we are constantly sharing our thoughts with the audience as well as having a dialogue. Mm-hmm. So the audience is party subtext, secrets, everything. And uh, there were an awful lot more thoughts. So. They went. Yes, and there was quite a bit of repetition, which I think O'Neill does on purpose often.
0: Yes, quite. He never says, you know, uses one word when ten will do. Yeah.
1: So, Mm -hmm. uh, so that went too, and you know, just.
0: How about that device of the aside? In a way, Mm. is it is it tricky to get your head round as an actor, or going through the fourth wall? Are you comfortable?
1: At the beginning, it was completely terrifying at the beginning of rehearsals, because yeah. uh, we weren't sure how we were going to do it. Was it going to be something that was seemed internalised, as if speaking to ourselves in a mirror, absolutely connecting with somebody? And the grand discovery was that the more inclusive we were, the more interesting it was, the more titillating and sexy and exciting, and the more like reading somebody's diary or... And we thought about uh, mediums where it works, you know, Woody Allen's movies. It's always very funny and we love it. You know, and Annie Hall when the two of them are, are sort of being uncomfortable with each other, but we know what they're thinking. And, and, in lots, and in reading novels and, you know, so now it's great fun and of course we all love it. And Simon was very strict in the rehearsal room <coughs> and made us all connect with the stage management and anyone else who was in the rehearsal space watching. And some people were quite cowardly about that. Charlie always used to look up. Charlie Edwards would look up like this. And then he eventually looked down. He won't mind me telling you that. And, um, and, and Simon, hilariously, was the worst person to have eye contact with because he'd be so enthusiastic in he? listening. <laughs> he'd put you off and you'd forget your lines. But, um, but,
0: yeah. I, I, there can't be many rules that, you, that you're required to age 25 years, in effect, aren't you, in this? Does that- does that pose particular problems in terms of I don't know wigs and makeup and costume and all the sort of outside things?
1: Not really as in comparison with doing Elizabeth first mm-hmm. where I had to age 60 years You yes. know that was that was fine in the bum, but this, this is quite good fun uh, Also, it's odd. It's not something one has to think about desperately because the text kind of does it for you mm. That sounds a bit of a cop-out, but it isn't really and and for actually the biggest, the largest, um, you know, the section of the play, Nina is in the prime of her life, from her twenties mm-hmm. into her thirties. And then there's a sort of leap, and it's a kind of a poetic leap as well, because although Nina's only a few years older than me at the end of the play, so I think she's supposed to be forty-six. We worked out. It's as if she's sixty maybe more, you know, it's a sort of poetic decision I think O'Neill makes, that she's kind of, you know, uh, exhausted. And, um, and so, it, doesn't, it just doesn't feel, one hasn't had to make, I suppose there's a tempo adjustment, there are things, maybe perhaps vocally slightly, but mm-hmm. nothing major.
0: Nothing major. I mean, what do you think O'Neill thinks of Nina? Uh, Chapman, one of the programme articles talked about him being kind of repelled and fascinated at the same time by her, by the sort of um, I suppose you'd say what's the word? Rebellious sexual power of women mm-hmm. that, that can undermine uh, man, cow, man, anyway. And certainly, in this play, does. Would you agree with that? I, mean, I didn't get that sense so much. I think he rather have fallen for her, fallen in love with her. Uh, is one of her admirers too.
1: I think it's, um, it's quite an adjustment for us to think of Nina. For us, we're a 21st century audience, post-Freud, post-everything. So we I totally understand the notion of perforated boundaries, of people behaving sexually in a way that maybe be some desperate attempt to fulfil something, to, to fill an emptiness, to discover oneself to all of those things. Um, But this I don't think had been defined or articulated In any great detail at that time So I suspect it's about creative interpretation too Mm -hmm. And I suspect our production is probably warmer towards her as a result of having all of that than previously Um, I Didn't feel that O'Neill I mean God knows there are all kinds of labels thrown O'Neil in terms of his relationship with women and quite rightly, but I don't feel that there's a harshness in his writing about her Because all of the characters are a bit fucked up mm-hmm. and a bit selfish and a bit as we were saying earlier mm-hmm. self-serving and and so they're all just kind of bristling against each other whatever that means for them, you know. So it feels more of an ensemble sort of take on it, really. uh. Yes,
0: I mean, I think he admires her. uh, Do do you think that she's hemmed in by society, that she's limited by society's mores?
1: Well, of course she's a woman at that time. Yes. So it goes without saying, Mm -hmm. you know, and...
0: And And do you think O'Neill sympathises with her her predicament?
1: Possibly. Mm -hmm. I I do feel like there's a lot of him in her, in that strange behaviour, in terms of f- his emotional unavailability, mm-hmm. and yet sort of clinging and like a sort of ivy around the tree of people, you know. And but I, I do, so I do feel that there there is an affinity. Um, I. I love her, and I think, like you say, in some weird way, so does he. I think she's harder to love as she gets older, and I've talked about this before, but I, you know, when one is in one's 20s and a bit complicated, oh, it's very sexy, it's very exciting, it's interesting, and it's, oh, especially in a woman. Mm -hmm. Then suddenly one is in one's 30s. Okay, they're a little bit of hard work, but they're still kind of sexy and interesting. Then when one's in one's 40s, oh, Jesus God, there's something wrong with this woman. And she's difficult to be around and everything begins to calcify and become more bitter and more unfulfilled and more unresolved, and I think that um, I think that's what O'Neill does brilliantly actually without making her a harridan or a sort of Archetype, you know, I think he does that beautifully and so it's easy to play
0: I think we feel that she's capable of more than she's been allowed To do by circumstance and by society's rules. Yes, Um, I mean that's what I.
1: And also, and I must stress this: her sexual Mm -hmm. behaviour is born out of grief. Mm. And it's it's, you know, she loses her first love before consummation, Mm. which happened to a lot of women actually in First World War. Yes, quite. And um, so. Therefore, you know, what do you equate with you know, sex becomes a, to do with loss, to do with being unresolved, to do with, you know, if you've never experienced mm. the touch, the first touch, you're looking for it all, all times and you're trying to you're trying to answer that question for yourself and I think I think that, 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 that's in the play very clearly.
0: Do you, is she hard to play? Do you feel that you there's so much to her that it's difficult to encompass all her qualities, all her characteristics in one on one evening or one matinee? Or do you have you feel that you've got sort of the grasp of her, the feel of her?
1: Well, I should be so lucky, you know. Mm. I get to play all the instruments yeah. in the orchestra. I, I'm lucky. I'm a lucky yeah. duck, you know. Mm. I can't grumble, mm. and. I come to the restaurant starving. I make sure I'm hungry enough to do it every right. night, to, to taste everything. And, yeah. And I'm really lucky. You have to remember that as an actor. I'm mm. not going, excuse me, Gov, mm. I'm I'm getting to be 20 and heartbroken. Mm. I'm getting to be adulterous in my 30s. I'm getting to be, mm. you know, so I'm lucky.
0: Mm. Well, we're lucky watching you being lucky too, <laughs> if I may And I was very struck. It must have been, I think it was the sort of, um, ambience of the of the piece, um, and it was something about the I think the wig you wear in the final act. It's,
1: it's very glamorous, ladies. Exactly,
0: well. but I would. Has everyone ever said how much you resemble Betty Davis?
1: Yes, I have actually. Well,
0: because it started me thinking. I can't get the thought out of my mind, and I just wondered. Now she was she was a tremendous. How much do you know about her? Are you an admirer of her? Would you? Yeah. Would you like to have been a sort of movie goddess during the, the golden years of Hollywood.
1: (laughs) I don't think I really got the looks to be a goddess, but, uh, yeah, well, you know, we were saying, I'm talking about Mildred Pierce and, Mm -hmm. you know, those women were something in those movies. They were something. They weren't just the wife, the mom, the this, the that. They were the compass points and Mm. they were shattered and interesting and, yeah. How
0: fabulous. Yes, I think you would, I mean, if only you'd been born another hundred years earlier or something. (laughs) Your timing is a bit awry there, but it just struck me that Yes, I'd like to see you, as you say, Joan Crawford was Mildred Pierce, of course, but any of the, the old acquaintance. Those great Warner mm. Brothers melodramas that she made. Uh, if anyone ever wants to remake them, you know, you should be at the head of the queue for them. Yeah,
1: that'd be right. <laughs> I see that happening. Well, let's go back to the <laughs> beginning, as they
0: say. And you grew up in West London. Yeah. Uh, your parents were Irish immigrants. Your dad was a painter and decorator. Your mum worked in a shoe shop. Were you an only child? Did you have siblings? Or I have a brother. You yes. have a brother, but did you play a lot in your own imagination as, as a kid?
1: Yeah, I did. I mm. wasn't a shuffle ball change kid. I didn't go to dance classes or do any of that stuff. Um, mm. I read an awful lot, mm. and uh, was quite shy and and just kind of went to youth theatre because my best pal was going to a yeah. youth theatre. And that's how it happened, mm. really. And then kind of just unlocked stuff. You know the way that, well, I mean, it's an awful comparison, but you know the way alcoholics say when they have a drink, they go, oh, now I, now I get it. That's kind of what I felt yeah. like. So oh, I understand everything now. Now everything makes sense to me. Right. And so I started reading plays. And I didn't go to the theatre very much because it wasn't there for me financially or locally, really. So the school didn't take you to...? We came here you... a couple of times, and I saw Daniel Day-Lewis play Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite nice. <laughs> and um, and uh, I saw Miranda Richardson here, mm-hmm. and, you know, so that was very cool. Um, but it wasn't, you know, if you're working class in this country, mm. theatre isn't part of your life. Mm. Sad to say, it isn't. Uh, but I do come from an Irish family, who tell stories and sing and do all of that old stuff and so I was lucky in that way
0: So when did the idea strike you that you could make a living doing this stuff?
1: Um, of course, I never thought about money because one doesn't when ones in one's mm. teens, but I, uh, I suppose it would have been around that time mid-teens I became ob- obnoxiously determined. Yeah, I think I had to be uh, Because the whole world was telling me I shouldn't be and it was the height of the Thatcherite 80s and all my pals who were great artists or singers or had any kind of creative ambition suddenly wanted to work at Barclays. And I didn't understand it at mm-hmm. all. I thought I was confused and upset. And, and so just became even more, I suppose, blinkered and, and just read Peter Brook and did all that and auditioned for drama school.
0: And you got into the drama center. Yeah. Uh, which is famously, you know, they always say that it's a sort of uh, terrifying place where they it, it ruthlessly tear you apart to assemble you again. Um, uh, was is this your experience? Was it really kind of, were you put through the mill, mm. through the mincer?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's a different school now, but yeah. then it certainly was... Um, mm. It, uh, but I was 19 and terribly masochistic, and I loved it. <laughs> right,
0: because <laughs> it all sounded a bit forbidding, these, the guys, the Yats and Christopher Fetters and not the rest mm. of them, rather austere mm. and
1: uh, But Mary. it's sort of, you know, we lo- there's nothing mm. more pretentious than a young person, and the idea mm. that you're in a conservatoire and that you're going to change the face of British theatre, mm. <laughs> I mean, come on, of course you're not, but it's great at the time. Yeah. <laughs> when you're in your leotards, you love it.
0: I've always found with Drama Centre, I think I said this before, interviewing them, they're always, Drama Centre graduates, highly articulate, they can analyse what they do, they can talk very interestingly and uh, eruditely about the characters and things. Was this part of the the Drama Centre training then?
1: Well, I I think their objective was to make you as resourceful and capable as possible, so that if you didn't have the kind of director who was interested in having that dialogue, and there are some who mm. aren't really interested in your process at all, mm-hmm. uh, you'd be able to get on and do the job. Mm-hmm. And, and that's quite nice, empowering feeling.
0: But you, you got a job more or less right away. Yeah. What, what was your first job? It was uh? with
1: Mike Alfreds and David Clark. Right.
0: Right. We did a
1: production of uh, Les Enfants du Paradis. Ah. And mm. uh, I had about four lines in it, and it was great.
0: And were there some of the best four lines in the play, or...? No.
1: <laughs> but straight off the back of that, then, Mike offered me the lead in his next play.
0: Blimey. Yeah. So there you were, you know, already. Did you feel, I mean, does the drama centre training equip you to sort of really get to grips with the work right away? Were you, did you feel ready for that kind of challenge at that stage of your career?
1: Uh, I mean, I have to think back. Mm. But, uh... I had the arrogance of youth, you know, that sort of weird, well, you just, and it's your right and your duty, as O'Neill would say, to feel invincible Mm -hmm. in your early 20s. And I did, I guess, in that way. I wanted it so much, Al. I wanted it so much. And I think that's the point. You have to want it so much. Yes. And I don't mean to be famous. I mean to be in it and be inside. A character you have to want it so mm. much and I did
0: so you always you always felt comfortable within a, a setting of a, a company of rehearsing mm-hmm. and performing you you feel it immediately at home there
1: yes you do you do I think uh, there's nothing nicer than a rehearsal room
0: mm-hmm. and really I can't think you've been out of work for really that long you may have had your periods but they haven't <laughs> been have you had many uh, times so when just, the phone hasn't rung. And I did have
1: a quite a long period of unemployment after I played Elizabeth the First. Oh her. really? And then somebody said, Oh so did glenda jackson <laughs> <laughs> oh that's well, not so bad then yes quite. And, uh,
0: Glenda. of course she she played nina as I well know, i know much to you <laughs> everyone tells you that they yeah. saw that production which oh, yeah. must please you no end <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> they do say oh are you glenda that's what they
0: say <laughs> <laughs> well she's not a bad model no exactly follow, i should be really. so yeah so looking back through your uh, career are there things that <laughs> Are there particular jobs that stand out that you found particularly valuable or rewarding or...? Uh,
1: There are lots. Mm. So it's quite difficult to... Obviously, St. Joan was extraordinary for me on a creative level. I learned so much on
0: that play, I can't but, tell you. Because I, I should explain to the ladies and gentlemen, the, can, or the Blue Room, which is called the, the canteen at the National, I don't know it was re, re, uh, uh, renamed, the Blue Room, I suppose a bit of a makeover. There are photographs on the wall, I was just having my lunchtime sandwich, and there's a shot of Anne-Marie in rehearsal for St. Joan, presumably, and there's chaps who are back to you, and you're caught... You're sort. I think you're concentrating. There's a sort of uh, expression of intense concentration, as if I don't know whether you're thinking, "How the hell do I get out of this?" or "What am I doing?" or "Where is it now?" But you certainly you're kind of almost not quite in the photograph. Um, can you remember that particular moment?
1: We had a photographer on St. Joan who was a sort of rock-and-roll photographer. So all the photographs <laughs> are sort of in between moments, so people are always a bit, or a bit, <laughs> a bit which makes it look very cool. <laughs> but, you know, usually rehearsal photographs are like... <laughs> like that, so um, that's what it was. <laughs> which always makes me laugh. When I was working at Donmar last year, Josie Rourke and the cast of Berenice had this plan that they were going to sneak in, break into the National Theatre canteen and replace the picture <laughs> with something much more flattering.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, there is there's a sort of look of determination in your eye. <laughs>
1: That's one way that of can, putting <laughs>
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> which you can, you think, you know, that St. Joan was just sort of, you know, wondered, planning how to uh, raise the siege of Orléans or something, or how to...
1: Maybe to I will crown
0: the Dothar or something. <laughs> but that was, that was very much a turning point for you, playing St Joan, was uh, it?
1: It was inside. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember so clearly getting the phone call. Uh, I was, we used to have a tiny flat in Finsbury Park, uh, which the papers loved writing about. <laughs> anyway, we had this tiny flat in Finsbury Park, and I got a phone call, and I sat down on the sofa, and... And my agent said, you know, the National have been on the phone and they'd like you to play St. Joan. I could almost cry talking about it now, actually. And and I sat down because I, I remember feeling like I was 14 and everything had happened that I'd ever dreamed of. Everything had happened. And so I don't know whether it was a conscious decision or not, but I remember going, oh, this, I have to always, always remember this moment and take it into every day of rehearsal and every performance of St. Joan. And I really did, I really did. I remember standing backstage every night and I used to stand and I used to, because I had bare feet and I'd sort of go, ah, oh, my feet are in mud, my feet, I could feel everything. And I remember thinking, This is why you're a storyteller. This is the point of being a storyteller for a living. It doesn't matter if people recognize you on the street. It doesn't matter if you're hot, you're cool, you're whatever. The fact that you can feel the soil, the French soil on your feet, that's the point of it. And I I loved it. Mm -hmm. And I learned that that joy, that is has nothing to do with any of the satellites or the bullshit that surrounds it all. Mm-hmm. And that's why you want to do it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, so in that way, and I learned how to, break my heart but leave it in the theatre and go home and be happy.
0: Well this interlude, I don't know it's a strange interlude, it's been an extremely enjoyable interlude and I think the only word I can use to describe it of course is extraordinary. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the extraordinary Anne
1: Marie Duff.